Father, thank you again for this morning, this opportunity to be together. We thank you for your word. That it is um, completely authoritative, fully sufficient, all that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, what what we know that we need so often is just to remember to live with that mindset. That we know that your word is everything and, and that we can do what is right before you and therefore nothing else really matters. And so help us to live in that way no matter what relationship we may be in, no matter the context of life, that you would be honored above all things. Bless our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are back in uh, lesson three of our uh, several week series on on discipleship in the home um, and really just general principles of discipleship altogether as Christians. And um, we want, I think last time we ended with, um, we were in this lesson three on the challenges and we talked about the motivation of being, of pleasing God rather than pleasing self. And uh, this morning I want to get into the second one and see how far we can go on this. There's still a lot of stuff to cover in chapter three. Um, but another motivation that we ought to have when it comes to discipleship, or at least think about in a sobering kind of way for ourselves, is whether we're pleasing God versus pleasing others. Of course, we we spent some time last week talking about the whole reality of pleasing God versus pleasing ourselves, and that seems to make sense. But sometimes when we get into the relationship with our parenting, we, we get into this whole idea of being motivated by comparison to others. This, I'm going to raise my children or I'm going to disciple my kids in comparison what with what others are doing. Now, I, I want to be clear here. We're not saying that they're is no value to learning from uh, observing how others or interacting with others who have already gone down the road in their parenting or in their discipleship of their children. We, we ought to be doing that. There is a, a profit from that. That's discipleship. In fact, that's why we're teaching this. That's why we're going through this. This is part of that process. But what what I'm referring to is when we have this tendency to make others the standard by which we now hold ourselves accountable or want to attain to, as if they are the ultimate standard. You remember the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10 said, uh, am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Of course, the Apostle Paul was speaking about the gospel and about the accusation that he only said the things that he said because it was gaining friendship with men or it was gaining a a liking of the people around him. And Paul was saying some pretty hard things in Galatians. 
And he said, so, so tell me, am I seeking the favor of God or men? That's, that's the idea. We're not to compare ourselves with others or do things in order to gain favor from others. We're just simply to seek the favor of God. Uh, Colossians 3 and verse 22 distinguishes that, that difference between being a man pleaser and a God pleaser. They cannot become the standard. We cannot be those who measure ourselves uh, by others. Uh, for example, you interact with other families in the church, other families who are uh, trying their best to raise their, their kids in a God-honoring way, and they have set up a family time in which they do their own family devotions together. They have maybe a, uh, a night of the week in which they have decided that's when they're going to do family devotions. And so you use them as the standard for which you do yours. Or that if you're not doing family devotions on a particular night of the week or a particular morning of the week or a particular day or even at all, then you are failing. And they become the standard by which you have elevated your own Christian parenting or the way they handle the television or what kind of schooling they do. Uh, how many have felt pressure, although you may not say you felt pressure, but you, you sense a pressure when it comes to your children and it's about time for them to start school as to where they're going to do school whether you're going to homeschool, whether you're going to go to private school, whether you're going to go to public school, or whether you're going to do a combination of that, or whether you're going to do homeschool with co-ops and, and all these other kind of things. How many felt pressure just in their own self in that way? Yeah, a lot of hands. Why? Because there's that comparison going on. There's that, well, gosh, you know, I got, you know, you're, you're trying to do what honors the Lord and yet other parents are doing this and they're carrying themselves in such a way that it seems as if they're the ones that are doing it right. And, and that is pleasing people rather than pleasing God. Um, so the point is this. Any and all of those things can be good. And the reason why somebody is doing them might have be good ideas, good things for them to do, but we have to be careful not to do things for the wrong reasons. And the problem arises when we begin to compare ourselves with other people, other families, in order to determine what is right. What is the right behavior? What is the right method for what we're doing uh, or thinking or even believing that our method for doing it is the standard for which we ought to be doing all of those kinds of things. And when we think that our way and the way we've done it throughout life is the right way and there is no other way and anybody who doesn't do my way uh, isn't thinking rightly or isn't doing what's biblically right, that's called spiritual pride. That's just what it is. It's flat out arrogance. Arrogance that you have arrived and nobody else can do it the way that's right unless they do it your way. And so you create guidelines by which you judge other Christians. 
set up a list, standards, ways in which you did it. Anybody else who doesn't do it your way, they're just not right. They're flat out wrong. And what does that do? What does that do in the church when we as Christians do that? What does that do? Any ideas? Creates disunity in the church. That's one thing. It destroys unity, and unity is an outflow of what? Love. So it destroys love. It destroys unity and love, which should characterize the body of Christ. That should be the character of the body of Christ, and yet it destroys that. When we say and look through our eyes at others and say, listen, they're not doing it the way I've done it. I can't believe they're so immature. That's just flat-out arrogance, Russ. Jesus had with the Pharisees, you know. Uh, he had a lot of press, a lot of print, and I can find myself in those same mindsets at times. The Pharisees, you know, we all have a Pharisee in us in some, some way. We're probably trying to keep that in check, you know. Yeah, every one of us is a little Pharisee. We'll mention that here in a minute. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a moment, just to kind of touch on this issue a little more close to home. Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So he's saying, listen, you, you, you profess Christ. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a la Ephesians chapter 1, and everything you have by unity in Christ. And so here's how you're to live that out. Here's, here's what that's to look like by way of a worthy walk. Right? You've been called to this life. Here's the worthiness of walking in that way. Here's what it looks like. And he says, with all humility. Humility. Now, none of us would claim I've arrived at being humble. Right? To do that just proves how prideful we are. But it says, with all humility. Now, how do we exercise humility? How do we gain humility? Okay, a, a view of ourselves in comparison, not to other people, but in comparison to Christ. I'm sorry? Surrendering ourselves to Christ. Remembering who Christ is and who we are in light of Christ, right? You do that, it crushes pride. It crushes pride. So that's that's the first step in the humble, in the worthy walk. Humility. And then he says, and gentleness. So out of humility comes gentleness. Why? Because you see yourself in light of Christ, and therefore you see others with the eyes of Christ. And that causes you to not look at them with pride, but look at them with gentleness. And say, they're just like me. A sinner in need of grace. A sinner in need of love. And sinner in need of help. So humility, gentleness, and then he gives that one we don't like. The two, actually. The patience, and that patience is outworked by what? 
showing forbearance to one another in love. So you have to remember Christ. You have to remember your fallen state in light of Christ, which will help you treat others with gentleness. And then understand that there is this grand mystery of the grace of God, which will create in you patience for others. Because I can guarantee you this, nobody's ever done anything to you that you haven't done to Christ worse. Or a thousand times worse. Right? Somebody raise their hand and tell me how many sins they've died for for another person. I'm glad nobody raised their hand. We haven't died for anything. Right? That's why Hebrews says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, show me the blood. For what did you, what have you striven against sin that brought blood to your life? And yet Christ did that. We ought to be able to look at others and go, whatever you've done to me means nothing. Means nothing. Comparison to what I've done to Christ? Nothing. So when we create this non-biblical standard by which others have to rise to or by which we look at others, we are just arrogant. We're just prideful. And we're, we're the reason why there's disunity. We're part of the reason why there's no love that should characterize the body of Christ. You want to read a, a good book. I don't know if it's in your notes, but Ed Welts years ago wrote a book, When People Are Big and God is Small. A great book. Great book to read on just the immensity of God and the smallness of us. And yet how we reverse that in our minds. In practice. It'll help you think about who you are in reference to the kingdom of God. Well, what about, what about then this other one, this third motivation that we have to think about? Because it's really at the highlight of our day and age today. What about the motivation of trust versus fear? Trust versus fear. I think this is probably the most prevalent even today, whether it's discipleship relationships or other things. But we as Christians, Christians with children, Christians who are in relationships with other people, we need to avoid being motivated by a wrong kind of fear. By a wrong kind of fear. One of my favorite passages, and some of you probably know this because I write it in your birthday cards, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But really, 5 through 8 is the essence of that Proverbs 3 5 through 8 says trust in the Lord with all your heart we go okay yeah I need to trust the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight do not be wise verse 7 in your own eyes fear the Lord turn away from evil it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Rather than being motivated by fear, ungodly, unbiblical fear, we have to understand what true biblical fear is and what it means to trust God in every area of our lives, including our discipleship relationships in the home. We have to understand what that means. And some 
some of us as Christians fear, particularly in the, when it comes to raising our kids, that if I don't have 10 steps to a, to a well-behaved child or, or 10 ways or 9 ways or 3 ways or whatever to get my child to turn out socially right or not a, an embarrassment to me or even worse yet, they might even deny the faith. I don't want that. Certainly none of us want that. But So I want to find out ways that I can prevent that. And we fear those things. We fear what's going to happen if. And we have to make sure that we are sound in our biblical mindset. Um, this is really what we're all about. This is what I've talked about since day one of the ministry here, and that is discipleship. Um, too many, too many Christians, and even particularly young couples who are just beginning families, uh, don't find it helpful or don't seek out older couples who have gone through the process. And I'm not saying they've gone through the process and you look at their life and say, "Oh, look at all the success they've had." No, you, you, you look at older Christians who are walking faithfully before God, regardless of what the outcomes have been, and you seek them out so that you can learn from them. Discipleship. Titus 2 tells both men and women to, to teach those who are younger, particularly about family issues. It speaks to the women, teaching the younger women how to handle things in the home. Um, so that is not to say that you can't learn from books and those kinds of things that you should say. Some of the best disciples I have are dead men long gone who are in books. Um, but we glean a lot from others who have been applying biblical truth to their own lives. But even then, at the in the end... We have to trust God. We have to trust God. I was reading this morning out of the Gospel of Luke, um, just in my own time, and Jesus was about to be arrested. And I just thought about this whole idea of trust when... Jesus in Luke chapter 22, as Jesus goes to pray, he's just a short, short distance away from the, from the guys that were with him. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. There's desire. There's humanness. And then he's, but here's the trust, right? Yet not my will, but your be done. That, that's, that's the essence of the trust. That's the essence of, of where God wants us, even in our discipleship relationships, even in the home, especially in those places. So if we're to trust God, I want to throw this question out there this morning. If we're to trust God, what does that mean? We're not talking about 
necessarily trusting God for salvation. We talked about that back in lesson one, right? We have to be committed to Jesus Christ, and that's obviously salvation. But I want to know what trusting God means after you've trusted God for salvation. What does it mean? Henry. Doing what God says in the way that God says it and leaving the outcome to Him. Okay, anybody else back there? Trusting in His sovereignty. So the character of God having an effect. So what, what would that, let's, let's kind of drill down on that a little bit. What would that look like when I trust in the sovereignty of God in my discipleship relationships with my kids or, or somebody else? What's that look like to trust in the sovereignty of God? Okay. Okay, so it's so it's a remembrance. It's a it's a, a preaching to yourself that reality, right? It's somewhat like Christ in Luke twenty two. Not my will, but yours be done. I, I trust that you're sovereign over this whole deal. This is a desire I have, but the outcomes are in your hand. That's sovereignty, right? The idea of sovereignty. What else? What does it mean when we say trust God? Okay, Joe, and, or, or I'll go to you, Nick, and then Joe. Trusting in God's will and timing. Trusting in His will. How do I know it's His will? Okay, let me let me just push that a little more, not to put you on the spot, but how do we determine that? Because somebody will say, I feel, I, I hear this often in Christendom. I'm at peace with it. What does that mean? I, I sometimes have a feeling of peace when I'm sinning. No, that ain't right. I should never be comfortable when I'm sinning. Okay, you just you you left it in the Lord's hand, and the Lord did something that that was at least beneficial to you in an earth earthbound way, right? Okay, so you so you know it was God's will. How? Okay, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Somebody asked me this years ago, and I'll just piggyback on that. How do you know it was God's will that you come to New Hampshire to, pr- to be a pastor? I said, because I'm here. And I didn't sin to get here. I didn't, you know, it wasn't manipulation. I wasn't trying to orchestrate the circumstances and try to manipulate it all, but here I am. So there's a sense in which the ultimate will of God is seen through the circumstances as they play out, right? Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. He knew because he had a, 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 
an understanding from the Father that he must do this, he must accomplish this, right? And yet in the ultimate sense, the, the reality was he was still trusting the Father for the outcome of that, and we know the outcome because it happened. But there is a sense in which there's a different will of God, and that is his decreed will, right? In other words, I know it's the will of God that I should be sanctified because the word of God tells me that. So this is his decreed or declared will. The other outcome is his, his, his providential or sovereign will that we see happening through how he orchestrates things or he allows things. But the only will that I know beforehand is what? Is his declared will. That's the only will I know. He says, obey me, trust me, do what I say. So when Henry says to know the word of God, right? Or to do what the word of God means, I had, in order to trust God, I have to study the Bible. Otherwise, I don't know what to trust. I don't know what to walk on, right? I, I have to know his declared will in order to, to trust him. In yeah. daily reading, I've come across scripture that I've seen before, but it's tossed out of me, reaffirmed. Yeah, Absolutely. Right. Right. Joe, you were going to have a comment on. Yeah, I, I would even, um, I would even, I, as I think about that kind of thing and process the circumstances, is it okay to be concerned with the circumstances? Right. The Bible says to be anxious for nothing. So, I mean, there's an innate reality to our humanness of concern, right? It's okay to have concern. Jesus was concerned, right? Father, if it's, you know, right? If, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And, and then when he prays again, the, the reality of the, the event is so weighing so heavy upon him, he's sweating as if it were drops of blood, I mean, there's a heavy concern for what's going on. And yet, what brings settledness in the midst of concern? Trusting God, right? goes back to uh, sovereignty. The issue that, 
okay, yeah, I, I can have concern here. In fact, it's, it's not wrong to be concerned. It's not sinful to be concerned, but I can't be, I can't live on a human fear, a human anxiety. I have to fear God. Proverbs verse 3 or chapter 3 verse 8 or verse 7 fear the lord and turn away from evil to fear anything other than the lord is to act evilly period because the bible says we're to fear the lord and perfect love casts out fear so if we're living in the fear of the lord we can be concerned but we should not be fearing Henry. Yeah, we're going to trust him, right? We're going to still rely upon him. So, so trusting God means, first of all, that we, we look at the Scriptures and we learn from the Scriptures the biblical principles that we ought to be, uh, or for, that covers every area of life, right? If First Peter, or if Second Peter means anything to us, he has given us how much for life and godliness? Everything. What, is there an area of life that is outside of that? I mean, we have to think. We have to think logically about this. This is God. I mean, here we are in the Advent season, right? Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created. That very God with us. That's the God we're trusting in. That's the God who says, I've given you everything for life and godliness. And yet we so quickly turn to other things. We so quickly turn to fearing things that we should not fear. We're to trust God, and that means we have to know the Word of God which has principles for every area of life. That means, secondly, we have to ask questions of the Word of God. We have to ask questions so that we can be wise in putting those principles into effect in our life. We have to ask questions. Well, what is that going to do? How is that going to... What's the outcome of that? What are the implications of that for my life and down the road if I go that direction? What is that going to affect in my immediate relationship and my extended relationships? How's that going to look? And that will expose other areas in which we are to be trusting in which we may not be trusting God. God is in the business of changing us, isn't he? He wants us to be like His Son. He wants us to be able to pray the same way Christ prayed. Right? If you're willing, Lord, I, I really don't want to have to go through this. <laughs> but I'll trust you. 
I trust you. So if we study the Scriptures, we learn principles for our life. And then we ask questions. And from that, we learn wisdom. Wisdom, according to Proverbs, is just this. Skillful living. Skillful living. We learn it from what the Scriptures teach, and we learn it from other wiser saints than us who have put it into practice. But all along, we trust God. So, trusting God, in a nutshell, acknowledges that Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. I said this last week, I think, from the pulpit. Um, the sufficiency of Scripture is under attack right now in the church. I don't mean necessarily our church. I mean in the church at large. It is under attack. And I said it. I, 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 said, I mentioned it last week. The critical race theory that you hear about maybe in the news and the government and things like that has infiltrated the church in a big way, primarily in, in a public way in the Southern Baptist Convention, but this whole idea that you cannot understand what the Scriptures say unless you look at the Scriptures through the lens of someone in a quote-unquote oppressed category. Somebody who is a person of color or someone who is in some kind of abused position or some kind of state in which they are oppressed. Until you look at Scripture through those eyes, you cannot understand Scripture and you cannot really apply the Scriptures to the situation and to the discipleship relationship that that may be without that. Now that very philosophy, that very idea undermines and denies the sufficiency of Scripture. It denies it. It denies what 2 Peter says, that we have everything for life and godliness. It denies its sufficiency. In other words, you need other things. You need something from man in order to understand God. It's a danger to Christianity. It's a danger to the church. We don't need anything else. We have the sufficient Scripture. It will answer every question. It will give principles for life in every area. Brandon. So what if we fail? What if we fail to do that? Trust God. What if we fail in that? What happens? Do we trust ourselves? We're a Christian. Huh? Okay, we're going to fail. That's true. There are going to be areas in which we fail. So what if, what if we're raising our kids and we realize down the road, man, 
I've just been an utter failure. I've destroyed my kid's life. I mean, we think that. Chris. So let me ask it this way. It's true. Is, it, it, are your children or are your disciples in the Christian life held accountable before God for your failures as a parent? In other words, does God say, well, listen, sorry, I gave you your parents, but I know, I know they're stupid. I know they didn't trust me. They just kept stumbling along in their Christian faith. But listen, that's the best I could do. Good luck. And your kids are going, hello, Lord, if this is the cup you're giving me, can you let it pass? I don't, I don't, they didn't do a very good job. Do your kids have the ability before God to say, like Adam said to God, it's these parents you gave me. I'm like I am because those parents. I mean, if they'd have been better parents, Lord, then I might believe you. I might trust you. Can your kids say that? No. They will say. Yeah. It holds no water before God, right? Before God, sorry, you don't get that as an answer. You will stand before God as a child of God on your own regardless. And I will answer for how I was faithful to what God called me to do as a parent and a discipler in your life. I mean, it's going to go nowhere with God as me as a pastor to say, but Lord, those people were obstinate and stiff-necked. Didn't help Moses. God's going to say, yeah, so what? They were given by me to you for your sanctification. Now think about that. God has given you your children, every single one of them, the ones that you secretly like and the ones you secretly right now don't like, for your sanctification. To cause you to realize your failures, your foolishness, your lack of trusting Him, the way in which you ought to be doing things before Him in your own life, they've been, they're used by God in order to show that. Be a mirror. 
And listen, young people, you who are children in the room, your parents have been exactly chosen by God in order that you might know him in all their failures, through all their bad rules, other things you don't like. Your parents are there so that you would come to know God and trust God. And if you don't trust God, it's not because your parents didn't tell you about God. Even if they never told you about God, you are going to answer to God for your own rejection of God. Period. You're called to trust God. And the trust in God is the only thing that gives us hope, isn't it? It's the only thing on which we have hope. Because we fail so often. We fail so often. And because we fail, we go, okay, yeah, my failures are my failures. I own them. I must repent of the sinful failures that I do, trusting God. But the outcome, the mitigation of that is all born in the grace of God. God's going to do and allow in our kids and our disciples' lives what God is going to allow for His glory and their good regardless of our disobedience. And regardless of our successes. Because those successes are not ours, they're His. They're all an instrument of His grace in us so that He gets all the glory. So God covers our failures and He's behind our successes. <laughs> So that none of us can go, hey, listen, you just do it my way. You'd be a good parent. None of us get the opportunity to say that. None of us. Because none of us are that. In fact, Job 42. Right before Psalms is Job, if you're having a hard time. Job 42. Notice this, this is the essence of trust. And of course, if you ever read through Job, you know how it began. You know all that Job lost. You know all the friends that were there trying to help Job think through life. And none of them are all that helpful. And in the end, Job simply says to the Lord, I know, verse 2, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now there is a trust in the sovereign, providential hand of God. It doesn't really matter what goes on. God's called me simply to trust Him, to be faithful to Him, and I know you can do anything. Here's how my wife says it to me oftentimes when it comes to even our own kids or people we're discipling. The final chapter hasn't been written yet. That's, that's really what Job's saying. I know, I know, Lord, the final chapter hasn't been written yet. And that's why Job says... I, I, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful to me which I did not know. 
So I just retract it all and repent in dust and ashes. And then when you turn the page, if your Bible ends at verse 6 there with mine, you turn the page and verse 7 tells us the next chapter that God writes. Job is shown the grace of God. So what is God's requirement for us? What's his requirement? Faithfulness. Simply be faithful. Simply be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy, faithful. Just be faithful. Faithful to do what God calls you to do. And don't forget, don't forget, you have a sufficient guide. Even if you never had any another couple that you could go to or another person you could go to, you have the absolute sufficient guide. God is our guide. God is our guide. We think far too lightly of what it says in Matthew 6.33, don't we? Seek first what? His kingdom and His righteousness. And it might work out okay for me. No. God promises there. So we must not fear. We must not be motivated by wrong fear. We have to trust God. So we study the Word of God. We apply it to our lives with confidence. We take advantage of any help that's afforded to us by God's grace through others. All the while, like Chris said, we pray and we trust God. Pray and we trust God. In fact, after last Sunday, or I think it was after last Sunday, Russ and I got together this last week and he said, you know, I was thinking about what we were talking about Sunday school. He said the book... Uh, it would be a good book for people to read is the book by Jerry Bridges, Trusting God. Trusting God. If you haven't read that, I would suggest you get that. Trusting God. Simple read, but a, ponder the principles that he talks about in there because it's a good book on just that very subject. Trusting God. 